Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 337 of Charlotte's Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here, as usual, with co-host uh, Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, this is going to be a double feature interview episode where we focus solely on two best-selling authors. The first author we feature is um, someone who's actually been on the show before, C.J. Box. Publishers Weekly says the suspense in Stormwatch, which is C.J. Box's 23rd Joe Pickett novel, builds as the various storylines neatly intersect. Box is writing at the top of his game. And up next, the second author we have is uh, Rebecca Mackay. Her previous novel was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. And her latest novel, I Have Some Questions for You, has been named the most anticipated book of 2023 by more than 30 outlets. Publishers Weekly calls it clever and deeply thoughtful, sure to be a hit. Yeah, that's it. We're all about the interviews today. Two engaging books and two conversations with authors who know how to tell the story. But first, what's up with the podcast books? We've got another one coming out. Hey, this is the third book in the Right Quote series. It's titled Writing Process and Tools. Yeah, and we're very excited to share the inspirational and practical quotes in this book. They come from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 states and five countries. Yeah, and this book reveals how writers really feel about their writing process and tools. Um, to learn more, just go to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the podcast books tab Books tab in the nav bar. Um, you can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, uh, don't forget that the first book in the Right Quote series, The Writing Life, can be downloaded for free online. Um, that's our gift to the writing universe. So just look for that link in the podcast books page of our website. Yeah, we hope that free sells as well as it always has. Uh, check it out, download it. Uh, you might like it, and it might lead you to then want to uh, purchase book two and book three. They're only uh, $4.99 on, on, online, and we're going to have them in print as well. But uh, it's a series uh, of books. Uh, we, we had too many quotes to put in one book, so we came up with eight. Uh, and it's kind of, pro- of a progression. We start with uh, book two, Learning to Write. This, this month's book, Writing Process and Tools, it's a thicker one because authors have all different kinds of ways to do what they do. And it's nice to kind of flip through and see how they do what they do because then you can choose and try you know, different techniques that might work for you based on what other authors have done. And then we've got Storytelling Inspiration Research that releases in June and Writing Techniques and Characters, July 1st. That's a very thick book because a lot of techniques are discussed there. And then Writing Community Revision and Editors. The revision process is key to many writers. That's August 1st. And then The Emotional Writing Journey, September 1st. Publishing Bookmarking, October 1st. All these can be pre-ordered now. You can go get uh, that information on the online sites and, and they're up for pre-order. 
Yeah, and if you'd like to get all of these amazing books for free, you can actually join our street team. Um, you can go to the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com or just go to the podcast books page also on our website. Um, and there's a link to it there as well to sign up. If you sign up for the street team, then all you have to do is just agree to leave short, honest reviews online about the books and you'll get all the books for free. So just leave a few words about how you felt about the books. Um, and just remember they aren't heavy reads, but they are full of weighty tips and reflections. And don't forget that if you become a patreon supporter of the show for as little as five dollars a month um we'll give you all the books for free ahead of their release date and that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews you will be able to access on our channel on the craft and business of writing yeah this is uh, we're very proud of the series um we hope that you will enjoy it get a lot of uh, inspiration out of it the print books are kind of easy to put in your pocket uh, you can take those with you unglot them um, and uh, use them for inspiration or reference or whatever you might do. So um, thanks for considering that. Uh, when you buy these books, you help support the podcast. And when you're on the street team or Patreon supporter, you're also helping us to get the word out there about the books. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, here we are with Act One. It's our first interview in our double feature today. Uh, the author is uh, C.J. Box. The, the book title is Stormwatch. It's the 23rd Joe Pickett novel. I really enjoyed it. Uh, let's talk uh, a little bit about uh, C.J. Tell us about him, Sarah. Yeah, well, in addition to the Joe Pickett novels, he's also written eight standalone novels and a story collection. He's won the Edgar, Anthony, McCavity, Gumshoe, two Barry Awards, the French Prix Caliber 38, the Western Heritage Award for Literature, and two Spur Awards. Um, he's an avid outdoorsman. He's hunted, fished, hiked, ridden, and skied throughout Wyoming and the Mountain West. And he's also an executive producer on ABC's Big Sky and Joe Pickett on Paramount Plus, both of which are based on his books. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a nice little bit of accolades there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hannah, tell us uh, a little bit about the, the Yeah, book. so when a prominent Chinese-American University of Wyoming press professor goes missing, authorities are at a dead end. His empty vehicle is found off the interstate by Joe Pickett the day after a whiteout blizzard in late January. After the second starting startling dis discovery of the professor's frozen body, Joe soon finds that his investigation has brought attention from federal agents, extreme environmentalists, and Governor Coulter Allen. It's a lot of people. Um, meanwhile, Nate Romanowski, with the help of Geronimo Jones, is rebuilding his falconry company and financing it by crypto mining. When a shadowy group of local militant activists working to gain power and influence ask Nate to join them, Nate is at a crossroads. They want Wyoming to join other western states and secede from the, re from the union by force if necessary. Should he trust them or is he being set up? Facing, faced with challenges, Joe and Nate must confront them each in their own ways, even if it means taking the opposite sides. Sounds good. Yeah, and, and the New York Times praises uh, uh, this book. It says, Joe Pickett, the conscientious game warden in these rugged novels, shows the tough and tender qualities that make him such a great guy to have on your side. And with that, uh, let's listen to the interview. CJ, welcome again to Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Well, thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. Yeah, and we really, I really enjoyed the book. I read it quickly this weekend. Uh, it's, uh, 
You know, I'm looking at the cover now, and I'm thinking about uh, all this white snow on the cover, and I'm thinking about the title, Stormwatch, and uh, maybe we can talk about the weather first in Wyoming, <laughs> and maybe <laughs> m- maybe how your experiences living in that weather have influenced this particular book. Well, it certainly had. You know, Elmore Leonard, um, in one of his 10 rules of writing, says, never start a book with the weather. So that's exactly <laughs> what I did with this one. Um and actually, uh, be, weather is a, you know, extreme weather is a, is a huge part of everyday life in, in Wyoming and in the Mountain West. And we're experiencing that right now um, as we're doing this podcast. And that I nearly got stuck this morning trying to get to my office in order to do this. But luckily, thanks to four-wheel drive, um, I got here. Yeah, and we'll just let the listeners know, since this may not release uh uh, exactly when we're recording it in February here. Um, this is February 20th when we're recording it. So uh, does this weather kind of stay with you? I mean, I got the sense from the book that you can get dumped on in March, April as well. Right. Um, for for the Mountain West, um, uh, we live in a little on a little ranch in, in, uh, in Wyoming in the mountains. And our snowiest months are generally March and April. Although this particular year has been a bear. We've had the worst winter I can remember for 20 or 30 years with lots and lots of snow and wind and closed highways. And every day is a new adventure just to try to get anywhere. I kind of wonder why anybody lives here. (laughs) (laughs) That might have been a question, but I think you just uh, rhetorically uh, answered. There must be enough good stuff, uh, you know, trout fishing in the summer and all the other things you get for about three months out of the year, right? It is true. And um, with the big the big snows come in, the animals move down. And um, this morning I saw both elk and pronghorn antelope out of my window, right right on our place. So that that's always exciting. I never get tired of that. Yeah, all we see out here is squirrels. So, you know, you're, you're ahead, <laughs> ahead of us there. Uh, well, look, um, we're... Um, we're putting out uh, eight books this year with a podcast, and we're going back and grabbing quotes from previous episodes. And I was going back and looking at some of the quotes I'd pulled from your previous episode, which kind of leads into this question. But, uh, you know, you, you're, you're going to be quoted in book four on storytelling as saying, people always ask where you get your ideas. And sometimes they just, they're just things that interest me, but sometimes they come to me in an odd way. And I was wondering about this particular book where you explore Bitcoin mining and the sovereign nation and illegal shed hunters. Did this come to you in an odd way or was this something you searched out? Well, they were all, all of those uh, particular threads all came in odd ways. I would say yes. Um, Several years ago, um, I was elk hunting in the mountains and looked down in a valley, a very remote part of Wyoming on private ranch and saw a, uh, a little, very high tech looking little shed in the middle of nowhere and no wire, you know, no power lines going to it any, any direction. And I could not figure out what that was. And uh, later found out it was a crypto mine. Um, there's entrepreneurs that have figured out one of the things a lot of people don't realize is how much energy it takes to operate crypto mining. Um, and, uh, I, it's, I know it's obscure. I'm not going to try to explain the whole thing, but what they found, they figured out is if they can put one of these facilities on top of an old oil well or gas well and draw just enough natural gas out of that to power the computers inside, they can, um, crypto mine. 
which is a kind of obscure thing, but those have sprouted up around the West, the Mountain West. And um, I know some people who build these facilities now, and very few people even know that they exist. So that I had to do something with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you come up on something that's just not in your wheelhouse there. It's not supposed to be there. And you go, wait a minute. Because uh, you also said one time that you all, when you see interesting things, you always try to figure out how to work them into a story. And that's what you did in this case, right? Right. And with the, with the shed hunting thing, sheds are antlers that drop from elk and deer. And it's become a huge market, um, mainly because uh, traders will pay up to $20, $25 per pound for dropped antlers. So once uh, May 1st rolls around, the shed hunting season begins. And it's like a little gold rush out here with people you know, scrounging everywhere, picking up antlers you know an elk drop their antlers there's like 80 pounds worth of antlers so that adds up um and i found out by um when i was on a ride along with a game warden that there's some very unscrupulous shed hunters um i won't go into the circumstances of figuring out how to sheds ahead of time yeah no that's just very interesting when we talked about your last book um where you went sort of into the heart of portland and you're dealing with black lives matter this time you're you're still you're grounded in Wyoming, but you're dealing with uh, this group called the Sovereign Nation. And uh, I'm wondering um, how much of a thing that really is, or is it more myth than uh, reality? It really is more myth than reality, but um, I actually introduced the, con the concept of Sovereign Nation in way back in the third book, Winter Kill. Um, and so it's not something, but it, it's definitely always sort of a thing in the background in the Mountain West. And it's usually all the, you know, talk of secession, talk of, um, you know, uh, resistance against the federal government comes up every few years. And the reason that is, is because um, half of Wyoming, for example, is owned and managed by the federal government, by different agencies. Uh, this is not a, something that happens in the East Coast um, or even the eastern part of the U.S., but in the West, there's huge tracts of federal land. And what that means is the people who manage that land are appointed by Washington, not elected by people here. So the conflicts are natural. And um, depending on the ad administration and the Secretary of Interior, um, sometimes those conflicts really rise to the surface. Yeah, I, I really got that sense in the book, and I imagine that's the kind of thing that goes on in the, in the coffee shop conversations. You, you know, you, you're you're hating on the appointed politicians as much as the uh, elected politicians out there. But but speaking of politics um, of the West, uh, you know, in this book and in other books I've read, you teach us about some of the political hot buttons of living in Wyoming without being preachy about it. And and one of the things I saw was that you— Thank you. Yeah, you create these believable characters who a reader might think, well, I don't agree with their views necessarily, but you sort of begin to understand from the way you spin them out why they think the way they do. And guns is an example. I mean, you know, that that's a culture that's so tied to Wyoming, and people back east don't have that experience and think about it the same way. I'm just wondering, is that— uh, intentional on your part? Do you have any tips like that? Because sometimes writers can get to be a little preachy perhaps, but I just thought, and maybe this is the tip, I just thought that maybe the way you do it through the characters themselves by creating a believable character helps make the point better than you would if you were, you know, trying to preach from a soapbox. Well, thank you. Um, 
I, you know, I love to read and I, I really resent it when I'm reading a book where I feel like the author is spending the, the, the whole time trying to uh, convince me of their agenda or bring me over to a certain side. Um, and some, I'll stop reading authors that if it, that, if, if it's too much hit over the head. So what I like to do is have controversial subjects, but have, um, like you say, proponents from each side say their piece in the book, and I trust the reader to come down where they may. Um, so I try not to write agenda-driven books, but I also, at the same time, like to introduce the topics that are important that I see around me and things I want to explore, but not hit the reader over the head with this is how they should think. Or, But I do want to explain why some people think the way they do and give the circumstances. Yeah, no, I think it's a very effective uh effective way to do it because you're, you're in a story. You don't want to be pulled out of the story by a bunch of politicking, right? I mean, we're, we're going, right. into, I we're, agree. we're going into this thing to have a good time. And speaking of a good time, um, I, I enjoyed, um, in this book also, you've done this in other books as well, but you give Joe Pickett's, uh, daughters, um, uh, his wife's always kind of had a role, but you give his daughter sort of a role, a more mature role in this book of trying to help solve the crime. And you, you delve into their personalities and, how Joe, the dad, is you know protective of his daughters and very much a partner with his wife. And I'm wondering how much of that comes from your own experience uh, raising daughters and also having your partnership with your spouse. Well, yeah, they, I, I, what I try to do in, in in every book, I tend to highlight one member of the family besides Joe Pickett. In this one, it was more than one. In fact. This was more of an ensemble book than any book I have written so far. Yeah, I got to meet, your, you know, got to meet your whole family. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot going on on different fronts. And it was very challenging to do, but really rewarding um, in the end when it all comes together. Um, you know, I mean, yes, I've got I've, – my daughters are older than the girls that are in the book. But I certainly um, – spent a lot of years listening to them, you know, listening to them conspire and come up with different things. And, and one thing that would unite them was if they thought, you know, they'd all have to band together to do something. Um, never anything as serious as in the book, but um, it certainly did come from that. That's great. Um, the other thing uh, in these scenes, and people who read your books uh, see this, and those who haven't, uh, if you're listening, you know, should jump in because uh, – this is a game warden, Joe Pickett, um, and what I like is that you give us this sense of what it's like to be on the ground in Wyoming, you know, what it's like to work with guns in a closed and open spaces, how it feels to be out in the elements. I mean, I just remember one scene as we're talking here about how when he climbed over a fence, just little things like he puts the safety on, he turns the gun down, and then when he gets over the fence, he puts the, you know, he kind of engages so he's ready to go. How much of this comes from your research and hanging out with other game wardens and how much of it comes from personal experience? Well, quite a lot um, in both cases. Um, you know, we, uh, where I live, um, we have a local game warden who has been, over the years I've gone on ride-alongs with game warden. We have a very amenable local game warden who's very much like Joe Pickett. <laughs> I have no doubt that he would arrest me in a heartbeat if I did something <laughs> wrong. And he's made that clear to me. But he also is very good about... Um, you know, explaining things, going, he'll, he'll let me go on, um, trips with him, uh, patrol with him. And I just learn little things like that. And that's just, you know, what you described is just basic hunter safety. There have been, um, you know, hunters all over the country and all over the world who've 
basically shot themselves while climbing fences by not doing it in a safe way. So when, when something like that comes up, I try to be as authentic as I can. Yeah, also just with the weather, too. I mean, the scraping and how the snow builds up and how you can get stuck and what you the supplies that you need to pack when you go out into the – I mean, just to, in the opening scene, I won't – you know, you're going to read part of that in a minute, but uh, he has to sort of make sure he's got all the gear he needs in case something goes wrong, right? Do you, do you think about that, too, when you go out? Every day, um, especially this winter, um, it's so it's it's easy it's so easy to get stuck in the snow, and because we're so isolated with such a low population, there's no guarantee that somebody's going to come by and pull you out. So, um, you need you know every every vehicle we have on our ranch has a little emergency kit in it and a tow rope <laughs> and chains on the tires, that kind of thing, and it's just something you learn. You know, you have to do that. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, we're going to have you do a little read. I've got some more questions, but uh, we're going to have you do a little reading. And I think you said you're going to start at the beginning of the book, a great place to start. Uh, anything else you want to say before you jump in? Nope, I'll just jump right in. This is literally the first pages of the book. But I wanted to start with an epitaph, which starts every day of the book. This what This is, quote, by Nick Cave in The Bad Seeds. It's a song. Doctor, doctor, I'm going mad. This is the worst day I've ever had. I can't remember ever feeling this bad under 15 feet of pure white snow. The song is called 15 Feet of Pure White Snow. I'm not sure he's actually talking about snow. Yeah, can I stop you just a second? That's right. Uh, before you read, because throughout the book, you do drop in, um, you did the song here, but you drop in poetry from different poets that speak to uh, storms and snow and getting snuck in snow and seeing what it's like to be in snow. So what was the inspiration for that? Well, you know, I, I do that quite often. I, I try to find quotes. I, I'm kind of a quote predator. Um, I've got a long <laughs> list on my computer whenever I read something, even if it doesn't apply to the book <clears throat> I'm writing now, something that strikes me that I might use in the future. So then when the book is totally done, I go back to this long list of quotes and pull out ones that I think are appropriate. And almost all of them foreshadow what's going to come without giving it away, I hope. And do you, you know? rely on your uh, publisher to do the w dirty work of going out and getting all the permissions and everything? As long as they're very short, um, they're general, they're, they're general use. If I, if I quote, if I quoted a, uh, the Nick Cave song extensively, we'd have to get permission. Yeah, well, some poems only only are a couple lines. <laughs> you, yeah. You can quote the whole poem in a couple lines. Anyway, I, I thought that was interesting. I think people enjoy that little segue, that little breather between main parts of the book where you drop in a little poetry. So that's nice. All right, back to the, back to the reading. Thank you. Yes, okay. Chapter one. Late March in the foothills of the Bighorn Mountains wasn't yet spring by any means, but there were a growing number of days when spring could be dreamt of. For Wyoming game warden Joe Pickett, this wasn't one of those days. This was a day that would both start and end with blood on the snow. At midday, he climbed out of the cab of his replacement green Ford F-150 pickup and pulled on coveralls and a winter parka over his red uniform shirt and wool filson vest. He'd had the foresight to layer up that morning before leaving his house, and he also was wearing merino wool long johns and thick wool socks. He buckled knee-high nylon gaiters over his lace-up pack boots, then placed his hat crown down on the dashboard and replaced it with a thick wool rancher's cap with the ear flaps down. 
On the tailgate of his vehicle, he filled a light day pack with gear, water, snowshoes, camera, necropsy kit, extra ammo, ticket book, binoculars, satellite phone. While he did it, he shot a glance at the storm cloud shrouding the mountain and muting the sun. A significant, quote, weather event had been predicted by the National Weather Service for southern Montana and northern Wyoming. Joe didn't question it. It felt like snow was coming, maybe a lot of it, and he needed to find an injured elk cow and put her out of her misery before the storm roared down from those mountains and engulfed him. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I love that. And and you, you shared a little bit in there what I was talking about earlier about how he had to pack his gear to, to make mm-hmm. sure he, he made it out alive. But he almost didn't make it out alive. I won't give away too much there, but uh, nice, nice quick opening. Uh, okay, let's do some writing life questions because you said you're a quote predator. I'm going to go back and uh, give you some of the quotes that you uh, uh, have in some of the books we got coming out. Uh, you might even remember you said some of this stuff. I'm going to see if you still stand, <laughs> see if you still stand by what you said. But uh, in our book on the writing life, you say, um, and I think this might have been in response to a question I asked about some advice you could give your younger self. You said, be patient, but at the same time, be confident in your voice. Don't try to structure your book but what's currently popular in the market or add elements to it you think will have appeal, simply to add them rather than be authentic and learn the business of publishing. Do you still stand by that? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. I th- sound pretty articulate there. Good for me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, well, and speaking of this, learning this business of publishing, it has changed over the years, right? Well, it has. Um, it- there's more books published now than I think ever before in history when you count all the when you count ebooks and publishers but I think it's I think it's more difficult for a first time writer to break than maybe it ever was um because of that volume and because there's so many things out there and because of the small numbers um that publishers publish commercial publishers publish I also think that it's very tough life now for those people they call mid-list authors, authors who aren't huge bestsellers but have kind of a decent following, um, I see more and more of them drop off and never to be here for heard of again, which makes me, you know, concerned for them, of course. But um, so it's 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 a kind of a strange market. It's it's very top-heavy with big best-selling kind of books. Uh, luckily, I mine fall into that. But I think very hard for a first-time author to advance to that level. Yeah, well, we have a book on learning to write, and you were quoted in that book. And, uh, you know, sort of going back to the beginning here, you talk a little bit about um, how you never really uh, could complete a creative writing class in college because they they were trying to make you do things that you didn't really want to do. And I've heard that from a number of commercial fiction authors. They try to turn... Uh, turn you in college into something uh, that's somewhat the same. And uh, talk about that a little bit again, because I think that's important to people to realize that, you know, there's not just one way to write. No, there certainly isn't. I think a lot of it um, is that many, and this is really going to make some MFA people upset and creative (laughs) writing teachers upset, but uh, it's like um, taking a, a car mechanics class from someone who's never actually fixed a car but has read about fixing a car or read um, criticism about fixing a car. You know, writing a commercial novel is not something I've ever been taught or ever even had the opportunity to take a class in that. 
Um, it felt like to me every time I would take a creative writing class, I was being taught to somehow someday write a short story for the New Yorker magazine without ever broadening it out beyond that and really talking about, um, you know, using experiences. I've always found journalism was the best background for me. And I find almost always that when I really find an author that I really like and I like their style and I like their, um, you know, their dedication, it almost always there's a journalism background there because they learn to write under pressure, get the words out. They can't live in their own head forever. They've got to put it on the page. And I, so I always think um, that's the best way to go. Yeah, I mean, you also said, you just said it again, that you were kind of self-taught, that you took these books and you deconstructed them. And I was doing a little bit of that. And I mean, I'll, you know, look, we, we steal from other people, right? So as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking about some things that were, I thought were very interesting because there were a couple of scenes where, um, you took us uh, and you left us hanging about what happened in a conversation, which would have been a big reveal, but you didn't reveal it. Then you had us go into the situation, something happened. Then you come back and you complete that, you know, situation where that reveal does take place, but you've got the context of what's going on. I thought that was interesting because you actually stayed in real time the whole way. You just kind of separated them, which helped create the uh, sort of the suspense and keep the anxiety up a little bit. And that is kind of, I mean, you're always trying to get people to turn pages, right? Right. And that's also kind of a result of multiple storylines going on at the same time. Um, it doesn't, you know, re, you, you nailed it when you said in real time. Um, you can't have every single conversation, every single situation conclude decisively one after the other when they're all taking place at the same time. So it's a little tricky to uh, have a lot of things going on that then then are resolved. But um, also, with this book, I wanted to do something I hadn't ever done, and that is the way I thought of it was like a godfather ending <laughs> where everything, all these balls are in the air, but they all click into place yeah, at the I, end. I loved it. I wish we could... Simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, I wish uh, we could talk about that. It's hard to do, but it was fun to do. We can't talk about it because we don't want to give it away, but it was fun. It all came together. Uh, in our fourth book on storytelling, you're quoted as saying, the number one rule of Elmore Leonard is leave out the part that readers skip. And you say, I try to do that. I love the rule. I love the idea. Um, how do you know when you're doing it? Well, the way he describes it, and I agree, is that if there's long blocks of text, readers will naturally jump over that block to the first line of dialogue and usually not miss anything. So what I try to do with my long blocks of text, which generally tend out to be tend to be um, descriptions of nature or um, setting the scene, is I just try to boil them down to the very essence of it and then move on. Um, I'm not trying to impress people with my prose. I'm trying to move the story along. And when I reread something that I've written that I start to get bored by, I just assume a reader is going to be the same way. So I just start splashing away. I've heard that. Uh, you also said that it's not fair to make the readers work to learn what the book is about. Does that kind of dovetail off the previous comment? That uh... It does, and I, th I think so. Um, I mean, we've all read books, and sometimes they turn out to be great. You know, but it takes 150 pages to get there. Right. And I always think things could have been trimmed or restructured to get us to where the book is compelling. Um, you know, no one has the time 
to keep wading into a, a large book to finally figure out what it's about and why they should be interested. I like to start out with a bang and get right and going because you can always backfill. You can yeah. start the action, then you can go back and explain how we got here. But yeah. it doesn't have to be a long, slow build. Well, a lot of the writers on, on the podcast, and I agree, talk about, you know, writing being rewriting. How much of your writing a book uh, is the first draft and how much of it is uh, looking at that first draft and making it better? Um, I, I kind of do it methodically throughout. Um, I go, every day I write, I go back and edit what I wrote the day before and then move it forward. Um, so I'm kind of constantly editing. And often I'll go back to the first chapter um, or the first quarter of the book to kind of tighten it up based on where I'm at later in the book. So I'm always rewriting. And then when I have that first draft done, I go through the whole thing in one big chunk. And then, um, then it goes to my lovely wife, who's my second reader, who picks out great stuff that I, I need to fix. And then, uh, then it goes to my, my three daughters and then my agent. So it's, it's <laughs> got a thorough read before it ever goes to publishing. So the daughters are saying that the young kids wouldn't really act like this, Dad, or you need to put some more of That's this in there. exactly yeah. right, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one, and one of the daughters had a little love thing going, interest thing in here, and I loved how Joe Pickett was kind of uh, looking askance at him from time to time, wondering, you know, what, what exactly was going on. You probably never did that as a dad, you know. Oh, geez, I did it with all three girls, <laughs> yes. I still do it. <laughs> That's great. Well, um, so we'll finish up with this uh thought here. Um, you talked about, we have a book on characters and you talked about, uh, the most important thing. And you said, you think some writers fail at this is to determine every character's motivation. And that once you figure that out, whether it's a good guy or bad guy, that everything else will fall into place. So do you kind of do that up front? Do you sit down and think who's going to be in this book? What are their motivations going to be? And that then helps you put together the beats for the story. It does, I do that, yeah. I think, and I, and I still, I still stand with that. I think I always do a list of characters, um, recurring characters, and new characters before I ever start writing the book. Um, I, I'll make lots of changes and additions and edits to that, but that way, you know, I guess what, what I'm trying to say is, you know, characters aren't shouldn't be introduced into a novel simply to advance the plot of the novel. They've got to be there naturally with with their own needs and motivations to make it fit right. And there, sometimes I read too many books where it's almost like a, you know, fireworks going off when somebody enters the room and you know, this person is only there to advance the plot and um, they're not really there. It's not real life. Um, It's too much. Got to suspend too much disbelief to believe that this person really exists in real life and um, has a well-rounded personality. Yeah, and one of the ways you get there, and I love this quote, is you said, bad guys never think of themselves as bad guys. <laughs> they, they think no. that, they think that what they're doing is justified by some reason. You said the trick there is just to kind of figure out how to justify their motivation. Right, right, yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, have you ever heard of, of a criminal arrested and <laughs> said, I just did it because I'm a bad person? Right. No, they always have a reason why they did what they did. And usually it's because they, they feel aggrieved by some reason. That's, you know, that's like their only thing they could do. Right, right. Well, this has been great. Talk a little bit about uh, what's next. I assume you've been working on the next book now and it'll come out sometime this year or next year or when? 
next year. Um, I, I am working on the next Joe Pickett novel. Um, it's going extremely well. That's one benefit of this horrible weather and being socked in is I, <laughs> I have time to write and hopefully get it done and have time to fish in the summer. But, you know, it, I'm deep into it. Um, can't tell you much about it other than it's a little bit of a departure. And um, a lot of people that we've come to know in the books may not make it out. Mm, that's interesting. Well, when, when are Walt Longmire and Joe Pickett going to cross paths in, in some book with you and uh, Craig Johnson, you know? I don't know how that could ever happen with two different <laughs> publishers and two different editors and two different contracts. I think I think it's a little too complicated. Yeah, it would be complicated. It'd be kind of fun though. Maybe maybe many years from now, who knows? You know, it'd be fun. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Well, look, uh, this has been great, uh, CJ, having you back again. And I, as I said, I really enjoyed the book. Listeners, go out and uh, buy Stormwatch. It's a Joe Pickett novel, and uh, be looking for this next one as well. CJ, thanks so much, and hope you can go. Dig out of this storm that's coming and uh, keep keep writing. Well, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Good, great questions. I appreciate it. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts leandiswade.com, sararcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here with Act Two, uh, Interview Two. This is uh, author Rebecca Mackay. The book title is I Have Some Questions for You. Sarah, tell us about Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca is um, one of those amazing writers who can really do it all. She reinvents herself with each book, um, does a totally different subject and world that she kind of enters into. She has an extraordinary range um, that has solidified her as one of the cleverest and most imaginative writers working today. Her last novel, The Great Believers, with a finalist for both the Pulitzer and the National Book Award, winner of the Andrew Carnegie Medical Medal for Excellence in Fiction, the Stonewall Book Award, the Clark Prize, and the LA Times Book Prize. It was also named one of the New York Times 10 Best Books of 2018 and praised as absorbing and emotionally riveting um, in the New York Times Book Review, compulsively readable by the San Francisco Chronicle, and a vivid, passionate, heart-wrenching story by the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, and I actually just started listening to this on Libro.fm. Um, so good. It is set in the woods yeah, of funny. New Hampshire. Uh, this novel follows, follows a film professor and podcaster forced to reckon with her past and re-examine the murder of her high school classmate. Um, in Rebecca's own words, it's the literary feminist boarding school murder mystery you didn't know you needed. Me <laughs> 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 <And> too. <laughs> Love it. It's a good elevator that pitch, is. right? That was really good. Love it. <laughs> One sentence. <laughs> And it's got a lot of a lot of praise. Uh, Lit Hub calls it uh, the secret history meets serial uh, from book list. Uh, a, a beguiling campus novel. Makai's rich, winding story dazzles from cover to cover. And then from a few booksellers, Acapella Books calls it an immaculate feat of storytelling. Howell's Books says a gripping narrative that left me unable to put it down. All good praise. Uh, let's listen now to Sarah's interview of uh, Rebecca Makai. So hey, listeners, I'm super excited to be here today with Rebecca Mackay, author of I Have Some Questions for You. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you. So I know in the acknowledgments of this book, you mentioned that um, you spend a lot of your time on the campus of a boarding school in the Midwest, where you also went as a student. Um, and of course, this is set in a boarding school in New Hampshire. Um, how did that personal experience come into play in the writing of this? Mostly just background knowledge, honestly. Um, 
I think that, you know, if I did not know boarding school life, I would have had to research it. And hopefully I would have gotten it right. But there are always those unknown unknowns. You know, there's there's always that fear that uh, you're, you know, people who really know that world are going to see the holes. And honestly, like I'm, I'm I do notice like if I'm watching a movie or reading a book that's set in a boarding school, you can kind of tell when someone doesn't mm-hmm. know what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, I was a you know, uh, I was a day stu- a scholarship day student at a boarding school as a kid. And then as an adult, my husband teaches at a boarding school and we live on campus. And um, it's a, you know, it's a world people got wrong a lot. I think people still think it's dead poet society out there. People think it's all um, waspy and wealthy. And, and of course, that that's a certain part of it. But a good boarding school looks more like a good small liberal arts college in terms of its reach, its diversity, its financial aid, its kind of Robin Hooding of resources and wealth. And um, I wanted to get that changing ethos onto the page. Um, it also, of course, was a bit of inspiration in terms of just a fantastic setting to write about. Um, especially not the one that I know because that's right near Chicago, but the, the one I'm writing about in the woods in New Hampshire would be so isolated. You have this really limited cast of characters and you have these people who, you know, pass through at the most formative time in their lives and feel this real ownership over the place, but then are gone. There's just a lot of fascinating layers there. Yeah, it does create this bubble that's sort of like the perfect setting for a mystery story. Um, and one thing that I found really brilliant in this book, too, is that it is a mystery. So, of course, there's this element of plot twists, and it's all about kind of creating surprise and questions for the reader, um, gaps in what the characters know, gaps in what the readers know. But also on a bigger thematic level, you're really playing with the idea of like gaps in our knowledge, whether it's because mm-hmm. of bias and prejudice or the mm-hmm. fallibility of memory um, right. or kind of the way that group thinking, mob thinking happens online. Um, can yeah. you talk a little bit about how you're kind of playing with those themes in the context of a mystery story? I really love the way you phrased that question. Um, I don't know that other people have put it together quite like that, but those are, you know, yeah, the um, the the fallibility of memory and the fallibility of groupthink and the fallibility of, you know, just our perceptions given our, our biases, unconscious or conscious, um, those are all working together. I, um, you know, within a mystery story, um, this, you know, this is a mystery, but it's not one that, uh, uh, kind of rolls around in the conventions of genre, as much as I also love a genre mystery, um, it's taking a very significantly realist approach, um, including a realist approach to consciousness and the, you know, what we remember and how subjective that is, and um, a realist approach to some of the systemic issues um, that would play into any kind of investigation. And so, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to work with all of those and then have the message of the book be, and so we can never know, <laughs> which I think, mm-hmm. you know, is, has been done and is a little frustrating and can be done well, of course, but um, would have been frustrating to me uh, personally. So um, it, it's ultimately about the need for us to put, you know, to examine what we think we know. And in terms of memory, um, you know, for listening to the memories we didn't think were important, acknowledging that the memories that we have might be wrong, 
putting memories together with other people's memories. And in terms of those systemic issues, um, biases and, and like that, that group think that goes on, um, actually acknowledging it, actually thinking about it, knowing that you can be susceptible to that. Um, and, you know, this is a case, the, the case in question in the book, it's one that, you know, Bodhi, my narrator, is someone who certainly would have, you know, has thought about racial injustice and and the prison system and, you know, has has her, her podcast that she hosts is about, you know, the mistreatment of women uh, in Hollywood, but of course, you know, is very, very tied in with that systemic way of thinking about injustice. And yet in this one case that looked like a clear cut mountain of evidence, open and shut, here's the answer um, that happened when she was a teenager, uh, she's overlooked that bigger systemic thinking because it was so immediate, it was so personal, it happened to someone she knew, uh, which is the kind of thing we can do, right? It's it's like, it's mm-hmm. um, we're great thinkers when it's really abstract and it's out there and it's not about us. And then you get an individual situation and you might not be aware of the ways that systemic bias um, are affecting sort of think what was like is or are how did I start that sentence the ways that no is the ways is yeah yeah, I know what you mean (laughs) I don't know what I said affecting how you think it's early here yeah (laughs) no and I I love how you called it a I think you said like a realist take on the story too because Mm -hmm. everything in this book Mm -hmm. feels so real the characters um the places the events it, it, it really feels like these could be real people and the ways that they're reacting feel like real people oh, thank you um one thing that, that, that i yeah one thing that i also really found interesting and unusual here was the um it's almost like a combination of first and second person in the narrative right. race like you have bodhi the narrator who's talking about her own experiences in first person um but she's also ostensibly narrating this whole story to a specific individual who's someone she knew when she was at grand b the school as a student um, and sometimes she goes into second person and talks to him directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was a really effective combination there. How did you arrive at that sort of narrative perspective? I wish I remembered. <laughs> um, so I started the book. I had a residency at the Ragdale Foundation near Chicago, such so artist residency. Um, was there for, I think, three weeks. This is in early 2019. And... I started, you know, very throw throw stuff at the wall, see what sticks kind of phase. Um, I started writing and the first things that I wrote had nothing to do with what I started the book with. It's like the first stuff I wrote is kind of like the beginning of part two now. And I tried out a lot of different stuff. And at some point in those two or three weeks, I tried out the second person. I think the reason I don't remember is it didn't feel very momentous at the time because you're trying so many things. Um, but I do know why I kept it, which is perhaps more important because um, you try lots of stuff and lots of it is ridiculous. And you're like, oh, that's <laughs> funny that I thought that was like, um, I kept it because um, it allowed Bodhi to channel her revelations, her anger, her rate of revelation um, of information at a certain person and it made all these decisions um it kind of locked all these decisions into place about um who she's talking to and how much they know you have to do that even for a book that's not second person you have to make this decision 
about, you know, am I talking to the listener of the story? Not the, not the literal reading public, but am I talking to you like you know these people already, like you don't? You know, if you think about someone writing sci-fi even, like, are they talking to us as if we already know this planet and these machines and this thing and we're and they're just giving us hints along the way? Or are they going long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away and, mm-hmm. and explaining it all? And, um, and, you know, for instance, for The Great Believers, for my last book, it was very specific. Um, it's third person, right? But it's talking to the listener as if they intimately know gay 1980s Chicago, but they just don't know these people. So I never explained what a, a certain bar was like. I never, you know, just hinted. I never explained, um, you know, what Chicago was like at the time. I didn't, I didn't, I, I had to get that all across through intimation. But when someone new walked into the room, I was like, oh, that's Teddy. And here's what he's like, um, yeah. almost as if you're new to the party. And so like, it's a very specific decision. Um, in this book, making that a literal person helped a lot because there's just so much backstory that Bodhi needs to get in there. And I didn't want us to literally be going back to 1995. I wanted it to be her memory. So that helped her to channel all of that. I'm sorry, that's like a really complicated kind of craft wonk answer. But that is that is the way, I, you know, that's the level you have to like be doing this on. And it just yeah. it helped a lot in that. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting how kind of giving yourself those guardrails, it does give a lot of specificity to it. And it also right. makes it feel very conversational. Like Bodhi has a very um, natural voice and it really sounds like it's a person talking to another person. And it adds to that kind of realistic feel of it all. Um, I think also the second person is interesting because even though it's technically directed at this one individual within the story, sometimes it kind of feels like it's talking to the reader um, right. as the you. And so it, it's almost subtly inviting us to spectate on the story, but also kind of in a way chastising us for spectating and being voyeurs in certain right. moments. And <laughs> there is that, yep. that idea of voyeurism that comes up a lot in the story, right? Like, you know, when we yeah. look at celebrities or um, people in, in crime cases that get a lot of press um, and those people almost become like public property and how everyone talks about mm-hmm. them and picks them apart. Um, can you talk a little bit about that theme of sort of voyeurism yeah. and what you wanted to explain? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the opening line of the novel is you've heard of her. And that idea there, the you, is not yet the specific person within the book. This is something, you know, Bodhi says in general, you know, to people. Um, this is, I'm fundamentally writing fictional crime, of course, right? This is a novel, but it takes as one of its subjects, true crime and the sort of true crime industrial complex that we have out there that is, you know, nothing new. People are, um, you know, like to talk about, you know, the the new venues that we have for that in terms of podcasting and Reddit boards, and you can spend all day on it. But um, that fascination is, as far as we can tell, as old as human history. You look at like newspaper coverage of murder trials in the 1920s. It's the most lurid, mm-hmm. icky stuff. Um, but we are all, I think for... I think honestly for like evolutionary reasons, I think we're drawn to it. Like I need to know what happened to that person so it doesn't happen to me Mm -hmm. um, is a pretty logical thing for most of human history. Like that guy um, is lying at the bottom of that cliff. I wonder what happened. (laughs) Maybe if I figure it out, it would be good for me to know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, 
I think there's, you know, that that's a that's a reason that we love a mystery and that we specifically um, are drawn to mysteries that involve bad things happening to people. I really think there's something hardwired in us that helps our survival. Of course, so much of what we are engaged in now is of no help to our survival whatsoever. Um, there's a little bit of like, you know, if you listen to enough true crime and like, yeah, there's certain kinds of guys not to date <laughs> that I should avoid, um, certain things I should know for my safety. But does listening to every day of the Murdoch murder trial help us in any significant way? I don't know, but God, it's riveting. Um, the, there is, though, you know, with that second person, that use of you and, and the use of you in the title, I have some questions for you mm. that people see before they have any idea that the book is addressed to a, a certain person. Um, it's definitely looking out at the, the reader and including them in this, this world, um, referencing true crime stories, most of which are real, some of which I completely made up throughout the book. Um, as a way of situating this case, the death of Thalia Keith, within this broader context of all of these other cases that you probably have heard of. And this is another one of those, even though it is actually fictional. Yeah, and I, I like that the title is I Have Some Questions for You because it's not I Have Some Answers for You. Like, oh, this book yeah. definitely no, lives in the gray areas. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not giving easy answers to um, either questions in the story or some of those kind of bigger moral thematic questions that you're posing. Right. Um, and and I, I love that when a book is a little bit open-ended in different ways and makes you think. I feel like some readers don't like that. They want like a of clean course. ending. They want to know exactly how to feel about different characters. Um, and even in kind of our broader modern world and like the way that discourse happens online, and this is something that you touch on in the book, I feel like there's not that much room for gray area in contemporary conversation. Um, you know, there's not much space for nuance in a tweet of 140 characters or whatever it is. Um, no, there is not. <laughs> Can you can you talk a little bit about sort of fiction as a place where writers and readers can live in the gray areas and why that's valuable? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it is. It's, you know, if you get real life or a slice of real life, even though fictionalized into a novel, mm -hmm. um, you have that realist lens. Things are not going to be easy. You're going to contradict yourself. There's going to be um, uncomfortable gray area. And it's, you know, there, there are, for instance, and I'll, uh, this is a slight plot spoiler, but not really, um, Bodhi's ex-husband, while she's back on, across the country, back on campus at this boarding school, gets kind of me too'd on Twitter. He's a visual artist and someone he once had a relationship with is um, complaining not only about how he treated her, but about the age difference between them, even though she was an adult at the time. Um, and for Bodhi this does not actually cross a line in the way that other things she's concerned about do. And she's someone who, you know, thinks about the mistreatment of women in Hollywood, feels like, eh, this is different. Um, a reader might agree or disagree with Bodhi, and certainly she really steps in it and, and things spiral in, in a way that nobody would particularly <laughs> approve of. But... Um, these are the kinds of questions that you can only, the kinds of conversations it feels like people can only have offline. Um, you see things like this go down 
in um, like, I think the classic case would be Aziz Ansari. Um, kind of after that initial wave of Me Too, there's this kind of as told to essay about what sounds like a pretty bad date um, in which, um, you know, there, there were, it was really less clear than the Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby kind of situations. Um, it seems like, you know, there was, you know, I don't want to like get in trouble myself. It's like, if I, if I end up giving my opinions, this is what's so scary, right? Like yeah. you, um, on Twitter, you, you had to either come down on, oh my gosh, she's absolutely guilty um, of terrible things. Or if you were very, very brave, like, no, he did absolutely nothing wrong. When the actual conversations we need to have are somewhere really in the middle of that. But that could be one of the scariest positions to express if you even could, given how much space you have on Twitter, because, you know, you're not taking a hard line. You won't have anyone exactly agreeing with you. But in real life, you can have those conversations. I've had those conversations with other women and we don't attack each other <laughs> for slight disagreements. We understand contradiction and nuance and this kind of icky middle ground. Um, so I, I just, I, it is one of the things that fiction can do. Um, I think fiction, I think film can do it also. You know, it's, it's art that can do it. Although I do think that fiction can do it better than film because we have a lot more time to spend in interiority in what someone is actually thinking. Mm. Um, you can do that in film on TV with voiceover, but you you just don't have as many words. You just don't have as much time there to work things out. Yeah, that's so very true. Um, and I have a few more questions, but first I would love to ha have you read us a little passage from the book. Oh, do you have a bit yeah. to share? I'm just gonna read the, uh, actually it's not a prologue. It's before chapter one, but it's not a prologue because if you put prologue at the top of the page, then nobody will read People it. People have so, opinions about prologues. <laughs> yeah. So you just start reading and you read a thing and then it says part one and you go, ooh, they tricked me into reading a prologue. Okay. Um, so this is just like the first, I'll just say it's the first page and a half. Mm -hmm. You've heard of her, I say, a challenge, an assurance. To the woman on the neighboring hotel bar stool who's made the mistake of striking up a conversation. To the dentist who runs out of questions about my kids and asks what I've been up to myself. Sometimes they know her right away. Sometimes they ask, wasn't that the one where the guy kept her in the basement? No, no, it was not. Wasn't it the one where she was stabbed in? No, the one where she got in a cab with different girl. The one where she went to the frat party, the one where he used a stick, the one where he used a hammer, the one where she picked him up from rehab and he, no. The one where he'd been watching her jog every day, the one where she made the mistake of telling him her period was late, the one with the uncle, wait, the other one with the uncle? No. It was the one with the swimming pool, the one with the alcohol in the, with her hair around, with the guy who confessed to write, yes. They nod, comforted. By what? My barstool neighbor pulls the celery from her Bloody Mary, crunches down. My dentist asks me to rinse. They work her name in their mouths, their memories. I definitely know that one, they say. That one, because what is she now but a story? A story to know or not know. A story with a limited set of details. A story to master by memorizing maps and timelines. The one from the boarding school, they say. I remember the one from the video. You knew her? 
She's the one whose photo pops up if you search New Hampshire murders, alongside mugshots from the meth-addled tragedies of more recent years. One photo, her laughing with her mouth but not her eyes, suggesting some deep unhappiness, tends to feature in clickbait. It's just a cropped shot of the tennis team from the yearbook. If you knew Thalia, it's easy to see that she wasn't actually upset, was simply smiling for the camera when she didn't feel like it. It was the story that got told and retold. It was the one where she was young enough and white enough and pretty enough and rich enough that people paid attention. It was the one where we were all young enough to think someone smarter had the answers. Maybe it was the one we got wrong. Maybe it was the one we all collectively, each bearing only the weight of a feather, got wrong. I love that last line so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, that was wonderful. Well, so I know your your last book before this, The Great Believers, had tremendous acclaim. Um, you know, it was nominated for the Pulitzer, the National Book Award, many other recognitions. Um, how did that affect the writing of this book in any way? Did you feel like there was additional pressure on you? Not, you know what, weirdly the opposite, I felt a little bit freed up. Um, you know, The Great Believers was my fourth book. It was my third novel because I have a story collection in mm -hmm. there too. And especially those first two novels as a woman, as you know, I was 33 when my first book came out. So not a baby, but younger. Um, I was really, really worried about being taken seriously. And there were, of course, reviews that did not take me seriously, that assumed kind of the lightest possible intent for what I was doing. Um, and, you know, any of uh, the my first novel was uh, it's called The Borrower. It's also the last is the last time that I wrote first person female, and God, people loved to assume that the narrator was me, and that anything, any mistakes she made, any ignorance she had, anything she was all me. And I'm like, no, it's it's a completely unreliable narrator. This is intentional. Give me some credit. Um, most people got it, but you know, you still those those few reviews yeah. get to you. You're like, ah. And um, so being taken very seriously with The Great Believers, I felt able in this book, and I have some questions for you to, number one, write first person female again, which was really scary to me because of, um, you know, just the assumptions people have. And then number mm -hmm. two, write about, although I'm writing from an adult perspective, write about adolescence which is something that would tend to get you taken less seriously because, oh, it must be YA and it must be, you know. Um, and then three, to write a murder mystery, which again, um, could get you taken as light entertainment when that's not what your aim is. So I, you know, of course there was pressure, like, I, I'm like you know, this, this kind of knowledge in the back of my head, like some people who really loved The Great Believers are just going to be sad this book is not... The great, like I was joking about writing The Great Believers 2, Too Great to Believe with like big number twos, like a movie <laughs> poster, right? Um, like, I'm never going to make you happy if that's the case. Um, so there was a little bit of that. Mostly, though, uh, counterintuitively, it was it was validation. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, well, and I know you also have something that you launched called the 84 Books Project, which I believe yes. centers around books and translation. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So um, this is just everything I'm reading right now, um, almost. My my father passed away in 2020. 
Um, he lived in Hungary and he, he passed away there. So I wasn't able to get there. We didn't have, I wasn't there for the memorial service. Um, he was among other things, a literary translator. And so I decided that my memorial to him is I'm just reading, I'm starting and ending in Hungary and I'm reading my way around the world, amazing race style um, with 84 books. He lived to be 84, um, all in translation. So I just finished my seventh book, which was Turkish and I'm, it's slow because I'm on tour, but I'm reading my eighth book, mm -hmm. which is from Syria. And um, then I'm going to go doing the Arabian Peninsula and down the east coast of Africa and then back up. And I'm having a blast and I'm, um, I'm sharing it on social media. I'm writing about each book on my Substack, And um, I have a lot of people reading with me, which is really, really fun. Yeah, that's awesome. That's such a great tribute and also just a great way to draw attention to these books that people might not otherwise read. Oh, English speakers, um, native English speech speakers read so little in translation. And yeah, it's partly because we, you know, so many books are written in English. It's not like we're, you know, we, you know, lacking for things to read. Um, mm. But you wonder if it's a little bit of lack of curiosity about the rest of the world, too. And, and it's yeah, just, yeah. I, these books have, you know, been amazing so far. Well, before we wrap up, I have one last question. Mm -hmm. I want to know um, if you could give yourself one piece of advice as a younger writer, what would you want to go back and tell yourself? Hmm. Depends how young you mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> like we're talking 16, we're talking 30. Um, uh, let's say like maybe um, beginning of your career, like early 20s-ish. Yeah. yeah, like when I started publishing stories. and um, Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it's hard to go back and wish I'd given myself advice because like, I love where I've ended up and that included making mistakes certainly along the way. Mm -hmm. um, I think the one time I most needed to hear advice was right after my first baby was born, I was teaching full time. I was trying to kind of, you know, finish my first novel and write stories. And um, I'd, I'd published a couple of short stories. So I knew there was something there, but it was really hard to prioritize, you know, um, passing the baby off on a Saturday morning and going to Starbucks for two hours when I, you know, I could barely keep my eyes open and trying to write. And I would give myself the advice some other people fortunately gave me, which was go easy on yourself. You only have a baby for a few months. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the other one would be, yes, it's worth it. I mean, that, that was really all I needed to hear. And that, that came in various ways. Obviously I wouldn't be here. Um, but I do just want to go back and give myself a hug and be like, yeah, it's okay. It's worth it to go to the Starbucks. Do it, do it. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> you have to make that time for yourself too. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. This has been wonderful. And I definitely encourage everyone to check this book out. It's an amazing read. Um, and we'd love to have you back for the next one. Thank you so much. I hope so. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. 
All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed this uh, double feature um, today. Uh, two very uh, well uh, accoladed, if that's a word, uh, acclaimed would be a better word probably, uh, <laughs> authors who have best-selling books out there, uh, talking about their books, their recent books, and also how they do what they do. And uh, and you can get a lot by just listening to how they, how they describe that. We hope you have. Uh, now's the time to let you know uh, what's coming next on the podcast. Sure. So in the next episode, we have a feature with acclaimed author Julia Kelly and her novel, The Lost English Girl, which draws on the harrowing story of England's many evacuated children um, during World War II and explores how one simple choice can change the course of a life and what we are willing to forgive to find a way back to the ones we love and thought lost. We're also going to talk about book three of the Write Quote series, which is called Writing Process and Tools. We're going to share some audio versions of the foreword and reflections and a peek by the host at some of our favorite quotes from the book. Um, plus, we'll have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip and elevator pitches and book recommendations. All right. Looking forward to it. Uh, Hannah, take us out of here. <laughs> All right, guys. Read on, write on, and rock on.